Father in heaven, we come into your presence, O Lord God, to bless your name, to ask you, O Lord, to make us to know your paths and teach us your truth. Lead us, O God, in your ways and teach us, for you are the God of our salvation. For you we wait all the day. So come, O God, and send your blessing upon the Spirit of God here and across our denomination and across America, wherever the Word is preached, we pray your blessing upon the preachers of your Word, O God, that the glory of the Lord will be revealed and you'll revive our nation for Christ's sake. Amen. Please take your seats, and if you would, turn with me and your copy of the Word of God to Jeremiah 32. Now, Jeremiah, of course, is the weeping prophet who gave us lamentations, and the book of Jeremiah, he's writing at the end of the southern kingdom of Judah, the northern ten tribes of Israel. Remember, the split happened in Rehoboam's day after Solomon and uh, 920-something, um, 26, I think, B.C., and the split happened, and you had Judah in the south and the ten tribes in the north, Judah and Levi and the half-tribe of Simeon and in, in the south, and Israel are wiped off the face of the map in 722 B.C., and then uh, 150 years later or so, you have um, Babylon takes over the same landmass as Assyria, Israel's lost in the sands of Persia, the northern tribes never seen of or heard of again, which makes tremendous trouble for the modern-day Jews, finding which tribes they were part of. And um, the southern tribe of Judah hang on, but they too slip into the same idolatry, and they are wiped off the face of the map by Babylon in 586 B.C. It happened in three stages. In 605 B.C., um, Daniel and his friends are taken off into exile. And in 597 B.C., Ezekiel is taken off into exile with some of the royal family. The king is killed, his body is thrown outside the gates then. Um, Zedekiah becomes king then, I believe. And then in 586 B.C., uh, the final um, exile occurs after a lengthy siege and um, the temples raised to the ground, and people are carried off into exile. Now, Jeremiah here in chapter 32 is in the middle of the siege, 32 verse 2. And so, Judah's done, right? And God tells Jeremiah to buy land, which is a strange suggestion or commandment, because He's, why would you invest in real estate if it's about to be conquered by Babylon? But he does that because God is promising, I'm not finished with Israel or Judah, no matter how it seems. Right? And we'll dip into the rest of the passage. Uh, the other context to notice this comes after 32, comes after chapter 31. That's the kind of thing you have to go to seminary to figure out. But in 31, you remember, the new covenant is explained by Jeremiah, a new covenant with Israel. I write their law in my heart, and so forth and so on. We'll refer to that maybe later in the sermon. And so Jeremiah 32 is in the context of the new covenant, which is important because Jeremiah is going to kind of um, improvise, as it were, under the Holy Spirit. But he's going to kind of be riffing and expanding, maybe a better way of putting it, on the new covenant theme in this passage. Let's jump into Jeremiah 
32-36. Now therefore, this is the Word of God. Listen carefully, please. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city of which you say it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place, and I will make them dwell in safety. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever, for their own good and the good of the children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. For thus says the Lord, just as I have brought all this great disaster upon this people so I will bring upon them all the good that I promised them. Fields shall be bought in this land, of which you are saying, it's a desolation without man or beast. It is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. Fields shall be bought for money, and deeds shall be signed and sealed and witnessed in the land of Benjamin, in the places about Jerusalem, and in the cities of Judah, in the cities of the hill country, in the cities of Sheftila, or Shefila, sorry, and in the cities of the Negev, for I will restore their fortunes, declares the Lord. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the Word of God endures forever. Well, in his, in his autobiography, uh, Broken Music, a Sting, the rock star, tells how he bought his first bass guitar, and there was a… a um, well, I'll read his words with an old Fender bass. He said, I had my eye on a second-hand Fender in the back of Barrett's music store. It's a careworn relic of the 60s. The paintwork ruined and the varnish flaked and piebald. Among all the shiny others on the wall, there is something orphaned, something life-scarred about this instrument that appeals to me. I have absolutely no desire for a new bass. I want something with a history where every scratch and dent in the varnish has a tale to tell. What were their dreams and their aspirations of those who owned it? Why was it sold? What were the circumstances of the sale? I am convinced that I can pick up the trail where it has been left. I will dream up a new and glorious future that the past has only hinted at. And so he bought that old guitar, right? Sting had an eye for a careworn bass guitar. Well, in our passage this morning, God has an eye for sin-worn souls, souls that are blemished, stained like a wedding dress pulled through raw sewage, chipped, scratched, filthy, utterly ruined. Every mark, every stain, tells the story of faithlessness on the part of Israel and failure. They're fast becoming fatherless orphans. And it's important to realize, right, we love 
redemption stories. We love the underdog story, right? Um, um, I'm not going there. We love the underdog story. We love the, we love the story of redemption. And I think part of that's because we know ourselves that we need redemption. Um, so we're attracted to the underdog. You've got to understand that there's nothing in Israel that would attract the eye of God. They have sinned away every right that they have to a second chance, to a new beginning, and a fresh start. Look at verse 20. What did God do to Israel? Um, actually, let's, let's go back to verse 18. You show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of fathers to their children after them. O great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts, great in counsel and mighty indeed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the children of man, rewarding each one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. You have shown signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. This is the Exodus period, right? And to this day in Israel and among all mankind, and have made a name for yourself as at this day. You brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders, with a strong hand and outstretched arm, and with great terror. And you gave them this land, which you swore to their fathers to give them, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they entered and took possession of it. But there is a but. They did not obey your voice or walk in your law. They did nothing of all that you commanded them to do. Therefore, you have made all this disaster come upon them. Behold, the siege mounds have come up to the city to take it, and because of sword and famine and pestilence, remember those words later, we'll come back up again in the New Testament, sword, famine, pestilence, the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans who are fighting against it. What you spoke has come to pass, and behold, you see it. Yet you, O Lord God, have said to me, buy the field. That's the field he was asked to buy, right, invest in. Um, look down at verse 30. For the children of Israel and the children of Judah have done nothing but evil in my sight from their youth. The children of Israel have done nothing but provoke me to anger by the work of their hands, declares the Lord. This city has aroused my anger and wrath from the day it was built to this day, so that I will remove it from my sight because of all the evil of the children of Israel and the children of Judah that they did to provoke me to anger, their kings and their officials, their priests and their prophets, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They have turned to me their back and not their face. And though I have listened, though I have taught them persistently, they have not listened to receive instruction. They set up their abominations in the house that is called by my name to defile it. They built the high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnom to offer up their sons and daughters to Moloch, though I did not command them, nor did it enter into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. Notice even there the regular principle of worship. God's chief objection to this behavior is, it didn't enter my mind, it didn't come out of my mouth, I didn't tell you to do it, therefore it should never have been done in worship, right? But 
Israel, or as bad as bad can be, when they said they, they sacrificed their children to Moloch, what happened in the Valley of Hinnom, wherever afterwards Israel burnt their rubbish as a sign of um, how horridly defiled that place was by idolatry. And it was a place where they said, the worm dieth not, and the smoke of the rubbish rises forever. And Christ and John ransacked that language to speak of hell, a place of wailing and gnashing of teeth where the smoke of their torment rises forever. What they did in the valley of Hinnom in those days, Moloch was there, this god, brass, right? And his arms were hollow from the back, and the priest of Moloch would fill the arms with, with red-hot coals and stoke them until the arms glowed white-hot. And then parents would bring their babies and infants and drop them onto the white-hot arms of Moloch. And to cover up the sound of wailing and gnashing of teeth from the parents and the children, and the priests of Moloch would blow trumpets. Israel did this. And God says they've done nothing but provoke me to anger by all their deeds. So we must remember, this is not some kind of underdog story. Um, that God loves the underdog and is determined to redeem the last, the lost, and, and the least. There is nothing in them that would draw God's heart to them. Nothing. And yet there is a kindness and a goodness in the heart of God to reach out to these people and to reach down to these people and to bring them back. And this chapter contains astounding grace. And it crystallizes in four distinct promises. First of all, God says, I will bring you home. I will bring you home. Verse 37. Behold, I, and notice God, these are monergistic promises, right? Monergism comes from the term monergo, which is a Greek term. Mono is one, and ergo is worker, one worker. God is doing this. Israel doesn't bring anything to the table but the sin that made redemption necessary. They are passive. God is the only subject of all these verbs. I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and great indignation. I will bring them back to this place, and I will make them dwell in safety." God does this. Despite their wrath-deserving sin, God's grace brings them home. Now, who are these people? Well, at first glance, you're going to say these are obviously Israel, right? Old Testament. You've got to understand, though, that when you go from the Old Testament to the New Testament, the people of God change from Israel to the church. But God still calls the church the Israel of God. And he speaks of the surrounding world as Gentile nations. He exhorts the church, who used to be Gentiles, walk no more as the Gentiles walk, right? And so if you look and just cast your eye in the New Testament for a second, right? We did this differently in the first service, but it, 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 hopefully this will work better. Look at Ephesians um, 2 a second, right? You'll notice that in the New Testament, God is constantly speaking of the church 
in Israeli terms and with Israeli language. So, verse, chapter, Ephesians 2, verse 11, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called achrobustia, that's as bad a racial slur as any word people would use today and get counsel for, um, achrobustia, the uncircumcision. You almost hear the achrobustia, that's the Greek word. It's kind of, it just sounds bad, right? Um, called the achrobustia, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Now, he says, remember that you were, before you came to Christ, separate from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You had no part in the nation, the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now, there's a complicated bit about the law here I'm going to miss out, but jump down, down to verse 19. Now you've been brought near, you were far. So then, verse 19, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. Fellow citizens of what? The commonwealth of Israel. Draw the connections. And he speaks of the church then as a new temple founded upon the apostles, New Testament, prophets, Old Testament. Right? If you, if you fast forward to 1 Peter 2 and listen to the way Peter uses um, Um, describes the church. 1 Peter 2, 4, Christ is the living stone, but we come to Him and become living stones, being built into a spiritual house, a spiritual temple. You're a holy priesthood, right? And then he quotes um, from Isaiah and um, verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Those are all words used in the Old Testament, Pentateuch, Exodus, Deuteronomy, to describe Israel. God speaks of the church in Israeli terms. What's interesting, if you turn back to Romans 9 a second, this gets complicated, right? Um, and I don't want to get lost in the weeds of Romans 9 here. Um, but Paul, Paul is explaining how God's promises to the Jews seemed to fall to the wayside because the Jews were cast off. And Paul says, you've got to understand, not all Israel are Israel. And he says, Israel is bigger than a nation. And it's interesting, actually, if you, if you look down Romans 9, um, Paul explains his dealings with Israel in terms of God's sovereignty. Has the potter, verse 21, no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, those are the non-elect, in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for mercy, for glory? 
Now, who are these vessels of mercy? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So, the elect of God, Paul says, are Jews and Gentiles. No shock there. But then Paul explains that in terms of the words of Hosea, verse 25. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people I call my people, and her and her who was not beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. Now, it's important. If you go back to Hosea 1 this afternoon and read Hosea 1, we did that in the first service, and it, it just took, it became overwhelming. But read Hosea 1. Those words that Paul quotes here in, in Romans 9, 25, 26, are plainly being spoken to national Israel. God says, you'll be Jezreel. These are the three children of Hosea, two at least of which were bastard children born outside wedlock to, Gom- uh, to, the, to Gomer's lovers. But Jezreel is with under judgment. The, the next child is called no mercy because God says, I'm having no mercy upon you. And then the third child is called not my people. You are no longer my people. I divorce you, God says. And then later in that passage, he says, hold on a second one day I will say again in this place where I said about you, you are not my people. God says, I will again say, you're my people. That is plainly being spoken of of national Israel. And yet, in Romans 9, Paul says, it's also being spoken of about Gentiles gathered into the spiritual Israel, the elect of God, the remnant, you might like to say, in among the nation of Israel. That's clear. And so, Israel is always much bigger than a nation. The, the, the reality of Israel was hidden in the nation in the Old Testament, but like a, a seed bursting out into a plant. Um, in the New Testament, Israel breaks the bonds of the nation and encompasses every nation, tribe, and tongue. And Paul is saying here, that's what Hosea meant when he said those words. And so, I'm saying all that to you is because there are those who believe that Jeremiah 32 is a promise made only to Israel, the nation. It's not. It's made to the real Israel, the Israel within the nation of Israel. As Paul says in Romans 2, he is not a Jew who is one merely outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. The true Jews are the elect of God amidst the people. And in the New Testament, they include also um, those who have the faith of Abraham. If anyone be in Christ, he is Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Right? And so this is a promise for you, that God is saying to you, I'm the kind of God who takes people who only deserve my wrath, and I commit myself to bring them home. And what is the home? What is the land? The land God is bringing us back to isn't Israel in Palestine at least not in this world. It's the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. And God is promising you, no matter what you do, if you're trusting Christ for your salvation, no matter how you treat me, I will bring you home. No matter how much you do deserve my wrath, you will receive my grace. You can't undo what I have purposed to do. 
that if you're truly my elect people, and you make your calling and election sure in your life, but my elect people are safe. You can't undo it. I will bring you home. And if you're one of God's elect here this morning, you'll hear those words, and they will call you away from your sin, away from the world, and you will lean in because your Father will never let you go, never. It's unbreakable, the commitment that God has with His true people. Now, I will bring you home. Secondly, God says, I will make you mine. Verse 38, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. That's the central promise of the the covenant. Every covenant, God says, I will be, you will be my people, and I will be your God. It's the central possessive promise of the covenants. You belong to me, God says, and I belong to you. Now, think about that a second. We take our possessions personally. None of us like losing our possessions. Remember the little child? Uh, I played the Star Wars figures and had the collection and the, the, the X-Wing fighter and um, TIE fighter and the Millennium Falcon. A child in my last church broke the wings off the TIE fighter after 40 years. I've, I've almost forgiven him. Um, <laughs> he broke all four of them off, and you'd think you'd stop after one. I mean, just snap, 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 snap. Anyway. But if you're listening to this sermon, you're forgiven. Right. But, uh, but before even that, when I was a child, I had these, and I, I guarded the wee small guns you got, like the Han Soto's blaster and the, Star War, and the Stormtrooper rifle, and even... Um, Chewbacca's bowcaster, which was specially made, his hand was like this, didn't grip the gun. So Chewbacca could only, could only hold the bowcaster, no other weapon could sit in his arm. I cared for these things. Every time I played with them, I would get down and look along the carpet to make sure I'd got them all up because the vacuum cleaner was coming and it's merciless. We just suck it up and they'd be gone, right? And I'd keep them in a wee pot. Um, and then one day I took them to school to show my friends who'd all lost all theirs because they were careless and they'd lost all theirs. I left the pot with all the guns in the desk, and I came back after lunch, and it was gone. Somebody had stolen them all. And all my Star Wars, um, um, all my Star Wars figures had been disarmed. Maybe it was the ATF, I don't know, but um, they disarmed them. And I was left having fist fights with my, I couldn't, I mean, there's no gun, it was awful. It really was really, it was a really defining moment of my childhood, but nonetheless... I'll talk, to, I'll talk to Phyllis about that later. But anyway, but it really brought, these were mine, and, and they belong to, the, 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 the wee men belong to me, and their guns belong to me, and they're still there in the house somewhere, and my kids play with them now. Um, they're mine, right? And it, there's a history to them. And the fact that someone took them away from me, and still they're probably somewhere, I don't know, in a rubbish heap somewhere now, but they're somewhere in this world, somewhere, because they're plastic and they don't dissolve. But they're mine, right? And, and even now, it bugs me that they're bereft of me, right? Silly, I know. But still, well, the fact that we feel like that way about our possessions, that's rooted in the character of God. We are that way because God's that way. And when God owns a person, He never wants to let them go. My people will be mine today and mine forever, God says. 
I will make them mine. I will bring you home. I will make you mine. It's a wonderful thing to look up at, the, as, as Luther said, the key, the foundation of all true religion is personal pronouns. He's my rock, my refuge, my father, my savior. When you can say that about God, you're saying a very great deal indeed. And when God says that about you, you're in a relationship that can never be broken. Never. So I will bring you home. I will make you mine. Thirdly, I will set you straight. Verse 39 and 40. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever. We see here motivational purity, directional purpose, and relational piety. Motivational purity. I will give them one heart. Do you ever find your heart divided? You pull between two things. You want God, and you want the world. You want righteousness. Oh, you really want sin. You, you, that, you, know, you want to redeem the time. You want to spend your time flicking through memes on Instagram or TikTok or somewhere, and you know it's just like it's a waste of time, but you, you find yourself doing it anyway, and you're pulled back and forth, right? And James speaks about the double-minded man, the, literally the double-souled man, the dipsukos in the Greek, pulled two ways, and he's unstable in all his ways because he's, he's never going in one direction. I'm not speaking of the pop group, but just one direction, right? And God says here, I will give you motivational purity. I will give them one heart. That David's prayer in the Psalms, unite my heart to fear your name will be answered. That's a promise. If you struggle with a divided heart, go to your father and say, Father, surely you aren't a liar, Father. Have you not promised to give me one heart? My heart's so terribly divided. Heal its divisions and grant me one heart. And God has to do it. He's promised. Now, I'd never call my father a liar. You understand? But there's nothing moves a father more than, Daddy, you promised. So much so that I've almost eradicated that term from, I never said to my kids, I promise you, because they're going to come and say, Daddy, you promised. And so I just don't say it anymore. <laughs> Maybe, perhaps, if God wills, if we're providentially blessed, we might go cycling this afternoon. If not, you can't say, I promised. So, um, but God's promised. I'll give them one heart. Motivational purity. And then directional purpose. I will give them one heart and one way. No more wandering. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Remember Robert Robinson, he wrote the opening hymn, Come Thy Fount. He writes that hymn. <clears throat> and within a few years, he lost his Christian faith. He was, he was embroiled in Unitarianism, which was a heresy that came in to New England, but it came from England, and it came to New England and really infected the northern part of America, which is why the northern Presbyterian church went south, I'm speaking theologically, much faster than the southern church because it became Unitarian, where they, and they believed there only is one God and one person in the Godhead. 
and that Christ was not really divine, though he was the best man that ever lived, but not divine. And that's a problem because if you've only got one God and Christ is not divine, fully God, then his sacrifice can't be big enough to atone for the sins of all his people in all the world. And he's not big enough. Only God can take the stroke of God and survive. And so, if Christ is not God, he would be consumed by infinite, eternal, and unchangeable wrath and could never consume it in himself. Only infinity minus infinity can give you zero, and only Christ can drink dry the bottomless, shoreless sea of wrath and fire and brimstone that is the second death, right? So anyway, Robert Robinson got fucked up in Unitarianism, and he became miserable for years. And then one day in England, he was in a carriage going somewhere, and as providence would have it, there was a lady there, a wealthy lady, benefactor of missions and ministries, and she was there listening in, in this, and she was sitting in this coach, and she's by herself, and Robert Robertson's there looking pretty glum, and she starts singing a hymn under her breath. Can you guess what hymn she sang in God's providence? Come thy fount of every blessing. And the more she sang, the more miserable Robert looked, and she said to him, sir, is my singing not cheering you up? He said, no, it made me feel worse. And he says, she said, do you not know this hymn, sir? And he said, know it, ma'am, I wrote it. And I would give 10,000 worlds if I could feel now the way I did feel then. And she said, sir, I think you'll find the streams of mercy never failing are just as able today to bind your wandering heart to Christ as ever they were. And her words brought Robert Robinson back to the Lord. And... God is saying, I will give my people one heart and one way. There's a promise you can bring to the bank. Like J.C. Ryle, as a young lad, worked in his father's bank, and he signed banknotes. And he said, what a difference a signature makes. It comes to me, and it's a worthless piece of paper. And I sign it, and it becomes 20 pounds sterling. And in those days, it was worth something because it was attached to sterling. Now they're worth nothing anyway. But, anyway. but in those days, the signature of the banker made all the difference, right? Before it was worth less, now it's worth everything it says. I promise to pay the bearer on demand the sum of 20 pounds sterling. And you have a promise from God. I will give them one heart and one way. And there's a third aspect motivational purity, directional purpose, and relational piety. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. This is not the terror fear of God, but the fatherly fear of God. The gist of true piety, remember Calvin says, does not consist in a fear that would gladly flee from the judgment of God, but rather in a true and pure zeal that embraces God altogether as Father, reveres Him truly as Lord, and embraces His justice and dreads to offend Him more than to die. That's the fear of God here, that that they they, they would relate to me properly. They will fear me more than they fear anything or anyone else. Now, interestingly, I haven't got too much time to go into this, right? But 
It's there. Isn't it interesting? In the context of the new covenant, what's it saying? I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. Now, that's a new covenant promise. Jeremiah 32, coming after Jeremiah 31. I want to ask my beloved Baptist brothers and sisters, of whom there are many in our congregation, how do you explain that? If now in the new covenant it's only individuals who are part of the covenant community, how can God promise to put the fear of God not just in men and women, but also in their children? as part of an everlasting covenant, not just that God will keep you forever in your soul, but that He will keep grace in your family line forever. Now, it's not an absolute promise. Remember, God speaks of Israel, which is a visible community, and inside Israel there's an elect community. And God speaks of the one as if it was the other. He speaks of the whole nation as if they're all His elect, even though we know from the New Testament it's only the remnant of grace in the midst that truly are His elect, but He still calls the whole nation His. And likewise, in the New Testament, don't we see the same dynamic in the church, that the promises to you and to your children? He's not just saying, oh, by the way, your kids hear it, it belongs to them too. No, they're embraced in it, which is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, do not divorce your unbelieving spouse, because the unbelieving spouse is sanctified by their believing spouse. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, whereas they are holy. How can, that, how, how can Paul use that language if there's no covenantal connection between the father and the children? Now, I'm not saying God promises to save all of our children, but He does promise to save some of them, that there will be, there'll be saving grace in your line forever and a day. Your kids belong to God. They're part of the external community. They're wrapped up in the arms of His promises, and He speaks to them the promises of the covenant and the real promises even to Cain. Maybe you're here, if you listen to me, children, you might think, well, how do I know? Am I one of the elect in the church and the non-elect? The Bible says, make your calling and election sure, young lad, young lady. But God comes to Cain, and God doesn't go, Cain, I've read to the end of the book. I've read First John. And it says, you're a child of the devil, which means you're in trouble because I have no plans to save you. Goodbye, go away. God doesn't do that. God comes to Cain and speaks to him in a very fatherly conversation. Cain, sin is lying at the door of your heart. Its desire is for you. You must master it. That's amazing. God has a real conversation, and God has a real conversation with every covenant child in this place. You're mine. You'll always be mine. I've marked you with baptism. You can never walk away from it. You can never undo it. And, but it's not just that I belong to you. The gospel belongs to you. Make use of it, son. 
All of the promises of God belong to you. The, the promise is for, for you. It belongs to you and to your children. The, the gospel belongs to you. It's offered to the world, but it belongs to you. It's like as I leave my firearm collection to my children when I die, some of which may become illegal in the years to come thanks to the ATF. But nonetheless, you know, as I do that, my children, the child who gets whatever pistol or rifle they get, the child could just bury that in the closet and never use it, which would be a shame because it could be useful, and they may need it um, to defend them from the enemies of the Constitution, foreign and domestic. But it's theirs. It belongs to them whether they use it or not. Wouldn't it be a terrible thing for God to come in, for a burglar to come into their house and have a, a firearm that was left to them by their father and they didn't use it? Covenant child, wouldn't it be a terrible thing when God Himself is coming to plunder this world and damn people to hell justly, and He has given you a weapon to defend you from Himself, the gospel, His Son, the only one big enough to suck up His wrath and make an end of it, and keep you safe forever. And it's yours. This weapon to defend you from God, given to you by God, is yours. What madness if you didn't take hold of it by faith and trust it. Trust me, God says. I'll bring you home. I'll make you mine, not in name only, but forever. And I will set you straight. I can fix your heart from the inside. And some of you here this morning, you're struggling you know, one of you told me recently that you just, you've just given up. You're just, you're, you just find it so hard to do your Christian duty. Sin is so strong, you've just given up. And I tell you before God, this promise doesn't allow you to give up. God has said, I will give you one heart, and I will give you one way, and I will put my fear in you, and you will keep it. Get on your feet and run with endurance the race I have set before you. My grace and all of the things you need are yours in Christ Jesus. So I will bring you home. I will make you mine. I will set you straight, and I will keep you forever, the everlasting nature. I will not turn away from doing them good. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever, God says. Back to the passage here. I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness. Verse 40, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And you're thinking, but can't, surely I can mess it up. No, who's doing all these verbs? It's God. God is doing all these verbs. He's left nothing left for you to do, right? Which is exactly Paul's point. If you turn quickly, we need to end this sermon, but turn quickly to Romans 8 a second. Give me three minutes. All right, Romans 8, Paul is saying, essentially, all things shall work together for good even our sins. Why? 
And interesting, what Paul does here is he takes you through the golden chain of salvation. But he only gives you the links of the chain that are only God's responsibility, right? He said, all things work together for good. How can you say that, Paul? Verse 29. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. When God foreknew you, were you there going, remember me, O God? No, you weren't even in existence. God foreknew you all by himself. And those whom he predestined, he also called. You didn't call yourself. God did that. And those whom he called, he also justified. You didn't justify yourself. God did that. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You don't glorify yourself. God does that. Notice it's the same those all the way along. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. There's no drop-off. And if you know your theology, you know that Paul leaves out a step, and the step is sanctification. And he leaves sanctification out, I'm convinced, because sanctification is the only part of the whole process that we have a part in. God works in, and we work out. But Paul leaves it out, because in the golden chain of salvation, it's all God's work, predestination, calling, justification, glorification. And what God does, you can't undo. And then he goes on, and I'm indebted to a 19th century Presbyterian for this this insight. These next verses, I believe, are all questions, right? And let me read it to you in that phrase. It's wonderful. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he be against you? Don't be ridiculous. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Will it be God who justifies? Is God has justified you? Is he going to charge you behind the back of justification? Don't be stupid. Who is there to condemn? Christ Jesus, the one who died, and more than that, is also raised at the right hand of God, who is making intercession for you? Is Christ going to certainly condemn you? when he always lives to pray for you. Don't be ridiculous. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then these are these words. If you look back in Jeremiah 32 and Ezekiel and Isaiah, words like these are always used about God's people getting their comeuppance from the world, judging them and exiling them. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we're being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered, even when the world kills us. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loves us. But I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You can't undo the doings of God. You're safe. Now, that shouldn't, that knowledge should not encourage you to sin. Oh, but it should draw you from sin, that such a God would love me at such a cost. 
should make us cry out to God, Lord, give me one heart and give me one way and put the fear of you in me forever that Christ may see of the travail of his soul and be satisfied. I saw a video this week of this teenage guy, just an average teenage guy, arm wrestling the world champion female arm wrestler. He wasn't even a very big guy. He stands there. And she wrestles with him. And she's going, and he just stands there like this. And then he goes, <laughs> and it's really quite, it just, it just shows you, forgive me, I'm not trying to make you feel bad, ladies, okay? But she didn't have a chance because God has made men stronger than women on average, right? Only if you can go up to Almighty God and arm wrestle him down, Christian, can you hope to be damned. Because God's strength will always be greater than you. God's weakness is always greater than your strength, and his mercy and grace are always bigger and greater than even your sin. If God will look at these baby-killing, Moloch-worshipping Israelites and say, I will bring you home, I will make you mine, I will set you straight, and I will keep you forever. Are you so arrogant to look at such a God and go, no, I'm too bad, you couldn't save me? No. Where sin abounds, His grace does much more abound. Let's pray together. Father, thank you, Lord, for your mercy and your grace and your truth. As we continue our service, we pray you will meet with us, O God, and bless us for Jesus' sake, and hallow your Son's name in our midst. Amen.